What up all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 182 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Henry Doss from henrydoss.com. Henry is a business coach and trusted advisor for many of us DCers in the dynamite circle and somebody who was willing to take the time to come on, talk about his life, his entrepreneurial journey, his investments, and give us some perspective on what it takes to be successful. So if you need a little kick in the pants, if you need a little bit of help, Henry's the man you need to call when it comes to getting some advice on where you're at in your business, what you need to do to propel it forward, and how you can turn the tide if you're not successful with what you are trying to achieve within your entrepreneurial journey. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out that phone at the subscribe button. If you want to support Misfits and Rejects, please feel free to go to patreon.com backslash Misfits and Rejects and give a monthly donation. All is appreciated. Nothing is expected, but it's one way you can support Misfits and Rejects as well as going to MisfitsandRejects.com and purchasing a t-shirt. So Henry and I just want to say thank you for listening. We appreciate your time. Please check him out at HenryDoss.com or DossKnowledge.com. He's a wealth of information. Super interesting dude. Very helpful. And I have no doubt this episode will inspire you to think about your life situation and make the necessary moves. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Henry Doss. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners... A lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Henry Doss from henrydoss.com. Henry, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you, man. And I really appreciate you taking the time not only to do this, but um, as the audience will learn through this conversation, you are offering yourself you know, to many of us in the DC, the Dynamite Circle, and offering your time as a business coach, uh, you know, entrepreneur coach, somebody who has you know, started a half a dozen businesses, has a wealth of knowledge, and you're, you're helping us along this you know, trying time. And I just want to thank you for that, man. You're welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to do it. Yeah, it's really nice of you and, and beneficial to me and, and other people who you know, aren't quite there yet, whether it's uh, getting that first business off the ground or who you know, are trying to level up their business and haven't quite figured out um, how to do that yet. Can you maybe talk about your path and journey as an entrepreneur? I know on your website you've talked about you know, starting half a dozen businesses. Like, Is that how you were successful as an entrepreneur or did you get into the entrepreneurial game later? Can you kind of talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Love to. Um, I always knew from a very young age that I was going to be in business for myself. I, I always, even like in high school, I considered it a foregone conclusion. Most of my family are uh, entrepreneurs, business people, or doctors, lawyers, professionals. So it's what I was exposed to from day one. Uh, but it was even more about just, the, I guess, my general arrogance that I'm going to just do it better than anybody else, right? It's, it really just came down to that. But I also believe that there's a lot to be learned from working by working for other people. So I took my 20s. I worked for a, a, a subsidiary of the New York, New York Stock Exchange. I worked for a big, uh, you know, Fortune 50 company. And I used that kind of as my training ground. 
And then by the time I was 30, I started a side hustle in the computer business. Um, after 18 months, I'd done about $600,000 top line. And I, uh, I turned to my wife one day and I said, oh, by the way, I'm going to quit my job and give up all my cushy benefits and hang up a shingle and start this business for real. Wow. How'd she feel about that? Uh, <laughs> you know what? My wife, we've been married for 30 years. She is my most uh, supportive. Uh, I guess that's part of the key of being together for 30 years. She's, she's always supported me. She had a little bit of a pause, but she had a really good job at the time. Um, we were... I don't know if we were dinky. We were only dinky for a short period of time. So uh, meaning dual income, no kids, right? For those who don't know that term. Um, uh, it was, you know, she had a little bit of trepidation, but she believed in me. All right. And that's really all you can ask of a partner. Yeah. So that sounds like then you just transitioned from the, you know, financial, what were you, tra you're trading stocks, bonds, commodities? Oh, I, I was, no, I was actually a computer programmer. So okay. for the, I worked for a company called SIAC. Um, I wrote about it in my book and they, uh, our job was to build all the trading systems at the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, the American Stock Exchange. So I was programming, building systems that uh, what's known as the specialist, the guy who makes the book on various stocks, what they used, it was really the, the early embryonic stages of what's now just totally electronic trading. But at that time, there really was a human being interjected into the, into the trading system. Um, so I was doing that and then a buddy of mine said he needed to source some computers and was having a hard time with it. And I said, hey, I can do that. And I did that and I made a couple bucks and then he fed me a few more jobs. And before you know it, I created a business. And then a couple months after I started it, he came on board and we had a nice 10 year partnership where, we're, you know, throughout the whole 90s where we made a lot of money. We spawned a leasing company uh, and we did really, really well. And then the dot bomb thing came in and, you know, the mushroom cloud, as they say. How did you navigate that? Because I was thinking about that pre-show, you know, just knowing a little bit about your background. You know, you probably were went through the, you know, the, the stock market crash in the 80s, the dot-com bubble, yep. the real estate bubble. I mean, and now we're here. And like, how have you navigated through all those? Have you ever had a time where you're like, you've had the, those oh fuck moments, like <laughs> completely underwater? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've had a couple of those. So this is this is crisis number four, um, with eighty seven dot bomb, uh, the Great Recession, and now whatever we're going to call this C nineteen. What's interesting is they seem to come within about every ten years, give or take, you know, one standard deviation. They seem to run in a cycle. Um, the first one, I was 28 years old, living in lower Manhattan. I was living in Tribeca with a couple roommates. I'll be honest, I was living a little bit beyond my means. And I learned to be a stock trader when I, when I was in high school. And I had all my money in play. And then the market cratered. And I called my broker and I said, uh, you got to sell it all. I need the cash. And, and I, I still remember him saying, you sure you want to do this? And I said, no, I don't want to do this, but do it anyway. Um, I learned some valuable lessons from that. So when the uh, dot bomb came and the, um, the financial crisis came, I had a bit cooler head cause I'd kind of seen it already. And I thought, well, you know what, if you don't have a clear direction, maybe the, the best strategy is to just like do nothing ride out the storm. 
when you come when it comes to investing philosophies, did you do you have one? Are you like a value investor, a technical analysis guy? Like, do you have that style that you prefer? Um, I I grew up as a fundamental trader. Um, so I was, you know, I'm, uh, even now I'm still digging in and, and reading quarterly reports and they're, they're as boring as all get out, but that's where the information is, right? I'm a numbers guy. Um, but a number of years ago I learned the technical side of it. So I used technical trading really to tell me when to get in and when to get out. And I have some other metrics, but ultimately, um, I'm looking for value. I'm looking for companies that have an upside. Um, I like low beta companies. So beta for, for the uninitiated is kind of the relative volatility to the market. So if the S&P 500 goes up a dollar and you have a beta of 0.8, that means you're going to go up 80 cents. Conversely, you're going to go down 80 cents. So the door swings both ways. So my goal is to try to take as much risk. I believe risk is the thing that most people ignore. Uh, they either they either take on way too much risk or way too little, uh, and they get seduced by return. So, so uh, I'll tell you a great story. This is dur- this happened during the the dot bomb. I'm at my office. I was on some kind of cold call list. And a guy called me up and I fielded the call and he goes, listen, we, our fund returned 300% last year or 200% last year. And this year we expected to do 300%. Would you like to invest? And I said, I tell you what, you're going to get more traction with me if you told me that you did 7% last year with zero risk. If you could tell me that, I'll give you all my money. <laughs> yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. So for the audience to understand, because I mean, you've had your hands in the, you know, the financial world of investing, but then the business world, it's, would you say that you've made most of your money in the business world and then the fi- understanding the financial markets has kind of helped you build your wealth? Um, I would say I have, I can honestly say, and this is not to be braggadocious in any way, shape or form that I have taken, you know, m- multiple seven figures out of the public markets over the last 40 years. Uh, I've never sat down and actually done the math on that. From a business perspective, I can't say I've ever been like an ultra million dollar a year earner. I've always done okay, but that's not really, that's not really where, um, where I've made the lion's share of my money. That's kind of your, your seed corn, your seed capital. Um, and then, Investments will, will make money while you sleep, you know, and that's like right out of the, the Warren Buffett school of, you know, you want your money working 24-7. Uh, you're only working maybe 40 hours a week, but you want your your money working 168. It's a good philosophy. No, I know. And I adopted a long time ago yet still haven't quite figured out how to make money in the market. <laughs> it takes time. I'm, I've been doing it for 40 years and I'm still working on it. So don't worry. I'm intrigued when you say you you started you know playing in the market in your in your high school years because I've read a few books by Peter Lynch who you know was a caddy for all these Wall Street guys and that's kind of kind of how he got his start. So is that how you fell into that game? Um, no, my parents who my mother was a school teacher, my dad was a middle manager for a big engineering company. It was a chemical engineer. They always believed in the stock market. The the fame one of the famous stories in our household is when they uh, when they bought their first house in 1964. My mother didn't like having a mortgage, so they sold the Monsanto, as it's uh, said in in our household. Uh, they sold the stock that they had in Monsanto to pay off the mortgage. 
Um, my dad would get these books from a company called Value Line. Um, it's not like today where you've got real-time stock charts. Back then, stock charts were printed on paper and they would send them to you in the mail like every week or every month, these gigantic books. And he would sit at the kitchen table with a with a with like a ruler and draw lines on them. And that's what he did. And that's kind of where I learned it. So in high school, I made 3,000 bucks working at a pancake house at 220 an hour, which was the minimum wage. And Chrysler at the time was in bad shape. And they were bringing in Lee Iacocca and the government was going to backstop them. That was the sum total of research I did. And I said, okay, that's going to be my first stock. And I bought like 50 shares of it. And that was my first purchase. I was in the game. I made a couple of bucks on it. Didn't make a lot because back then the commission was $50 to get in and $50 to get out. Plus, if it was less than 100 shares, you would pay a one-eighth of a point odd lot fee. Now, again, that, that was back in the day when they, when they were trading in fractions. So everything moved by an eighth of a point or what's now 12 and a half cents. They didn't trade in pennies. Um, so I had to make a couple bucks just to pay for my commissions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Commissions kill, right? Um, do you, you have siblings? I have an older sister. Is she have the same kind of brain as you? Like, did you kind of, did she get the same gift for numbers no have? no <laughs> i manage her money oh, i manage really? hers and my brother-in-law and my niece and my nephew you know okay. i i've been managing their money for years and um yeah i've done i've done pretty darn well from her which i just pointed out to her recently before <laughs> right before this this cataclysmic hiccup that we had mm -hmm. i said you see these numbers these are really good numbers you know you'd have to pay real money for these numbers so so she laughed at me she said uh she said well that's what you're supposed to do you're my brother <laughs> so yeah you're saying the first uh at 28 you went through the first crisis which was the uh the dot-com right. bust, right? Mm -hmm. And you told your broker to sell everything, but because you didn't have the emotional intelligence of the market to where you could, what, stay cool and ride it out or something like that? So I needed the money. Yeah. I had a, I was paying rent, and um, I wasn't making that much money. And I looked at it, and I said, um, yeah, I, I need I need cash. Uh, I wasn't, I mean, look, I, I, I could have gone to my parents if I had been short on money. I wasn't going to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was really the choice I looked at, which was to say, which is more humiliating to, to lose a bunch of money by, by, by selling at the wrong time or leaving it, letting it ride and having to go to my parents and say, Hey, I need a, I need a bridge loan. So I chose the former. Okay. I'm not sure if it was the right, right call, but it felt like the right call at the time. Interesting, because I'm I've just adopted this like I'll die before I, I I sell anything in the market kind of attitude, <laughs> and I have taken loans out to pay like taxes and stuff for my dad. You know, obviously paid him back or paying him back still, but it's like, um, what do you think about that? You think I'm silly, especially now with like the whole economic world coming to an end. <laughs> you know, you need to do. You know, uh, there's a book. Um, uh, a random walk down Wall Street, and I quoted it in my book. Uh, um, and he talks about the, you know, putting your head on the pillow test. And I, I don't remember exactly what he calls it. When you lay your head on the pillow at night, can you sleep well with this, with the de decisions that you made on that day? 
And that's really the ultimate lit litmus test. So only you can determine that. Can I tell you whether what you're doing is best practices or not? Best practices for who, right? You've got to decide, can I sleep with this? At that time, back in when I was 27 years old, um, I could not sleep knowing that there was the potential for more erosion or that I was going to have to go on bended knee back to my parents and say, hey, I screwed up. The humiliation of that was greater than the than the capital I lost. Mm -hmm. Prideful man. I got you, dude. I like it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With uh, the entrepreneurial spirit that you've had and you've always known you had, is it something that you were born with or is it something that people can actually learn because this word entrepreneur i'm an entrepreneur has been growing rapidly over the last five ten years everyone now is talking about being an entrepreneur becoming an entrepreneur i myself use the word not really believing that i'm a real entrepreneur because i feel like the classic entrepreneur is like an opportunity-based entrepreneur they see something in the market a gap in the market a part of the market that needs to be filled and they go after it, whether they like it or not. And recently I heard an episode on um, my friend, not my friend, but a person who I really admire's podcast where they talk about, you know, the four different entrepreneurs and you got like a mission based entrepreneur, you got a passion based entrepreneur, the classic, you know, opportunity based and then the undecided entrepreneur, which is what I am. And so my question to you is like, do you believe that people can learn to be entrepreneurs and grow into being entrepreneurs? Or is it just like, your DNA and like how you were born. Um, in my case, it was, it was how I was born and it was what I, what I saw, you know, you model the world that you see around. Uh, so if you're surrounded by, <clears throat> by independent folks who are doctors and lawyers and, and factory owners like my uncles were, that, that's what I see. That's that, that's what I know. So I thought, yeah, I, I want to do that. Um, now whether I was born with some sort of a genetic profile, I don't know. My father tried to be an entrepreneur in 19, I was born in 1959. He, in 1960, he and my uncle Murray set up shop to be entrepreneurs. Um, again, more family legend, uh, their first year in business, they lost $15,000, $15,000 at that time was a good year's wages. <clears throat> they closed up shop and he never tried to be an entrepreneur again. And that's not an unusual story. I've heard people uh, of doing that and not getting back on the horse. Um, he went out and he got a job and, you know, till the day he died, he worked for someone else. I think entrepreneurs can be made without question. But again, who are you modeling? Are you modeling Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Tony Stark, you know, some fictional entrepreneur? Do you have this romanticized notion about what entrepreneurship really means. Um, if you can get your head out of the clouds and understand that some of this is going to be a real grind. I mean, it just, it just is. And there are, there are the days will come up where you'd say to yourself, wouldn't it be nice if I could just like work for someone else and maybe go on a vacation and not have to check in with the office? Um, can't have it all ways. So, Certainly it's, it's, um, you know, it's advantageous to have been born into it, but if you weren't, it doesn't preclude you. And right now with all the tools available, I didn't know what a digital nomad was until about five years ago when one of my clients 
introduced, sent me some, some emails from this group, the dynamite circle. I'm like, what is this? Oh, they're digital nomads. What is that? I had no clue. I had no idea that it existed. I wish it had existed in the 1980s because I'd have been all over that. But we didn't have the infrastructure in place. Right now, you've got so many inexpensive ways to just hang up a shingle, go into business, create a, a cold email funnel and a website and all of these things. And you can just say, hello, world. Um, we couldn't do that. When I started my business, we had to really leverage personal um, contacts. There was no other way to do it back in the 1980s. There was no internet. And a lot more capital probably to start back with the brick and mortar days of entrepreneurship when you did hang that shingle, like you had to go out and find capital. We had six different offices within the first couple of years. We got thrown out of an office that we had sublet um, with one day's notice. We had to pack up the entire office, put the stuff in storage, and share an office with a friend of ours who was an attorney. Uh, her office was on, on the corner of Broadway and Houston. We were all the way uptown. We did that in 24 hours. We put all our all our inventory in Manhattan mini storage, moved our computers, and the next day we were somewhere else. That's wild, dude. Wild yeah, times pretty like amazing stuff. And now, I mean, since you, you live that, and I mean, you're not retired, right? Like you, you still- No. So yeah, you're you're in the game, and now you're kind of you're not a digital nomad, but you've you've transitioned online. You have, you know, your coaching business. Do you have any other businesses that operate online only? Uh, I have the coaching business, and then I have the you know the course in um, financial intelligence. Um, I don't, but I'm actually I've I've actually been talking to a lot of DCers, um, kind of coaching them up a little bit. Um, many of them are in the digital asset space. Uh, I've actually been thinking about maybe purchasing some, some digital assets. Um, I like to buy weakness as a stock trader, you know, sell when the market's high and buy when the market's low. I mean, that's as old as that goes back to, to the dinosaurs. Um, I'm looking to see, I don't want to be predatory. I don't like that, but I, I do like to be maybe opportunistic. Um, Right now, I'm I'm buying some what are called fallen angels in the stock market. Really good companies that have gotten whacked really hard. Um, the way I look at it is, you know, they were put on sale at forty percent off. Let's buy that. Yeah. I can wait for them to recover. And it's the same thing with digital assets. Like if I can buy on the weakness, help somebody out by by giving them, you know, doing a cash deal and making them liquid. Um, it's intriguing. I'm intrigued too and actually don't understand completely like with the fallen angel thing, what are you actually mm-hmm. buying? Uh, so so um, uh, I'll give you a, a real concrete example and I'm not saying this so I'm not doing a pump and dump and telling people to go run out and, and do this. Um, I've been accumulating a position in Disney stock. Okay. Had it on my radar, stock took has taken a huge hit. Um, think about it. I was reading their, their quarterly report, uh, last weekend. I think last quarter, the theme parks did $7 billion this quarter. Maybe not that, maybe not, doesn't go to zero, but next quarter, that number might be zero, mm-hmm. right? That's a big hit yet. They are an enormously asset heavy. They have incredible intellectual property and they're a very, very well run organization. Will they jump back up to $200 or whatever tomorrow? No, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'll take a 40% discount on that to, to the market and and give it till you know two years. I've got stocks in my portfolio I've owned for years. Um, that's a good play. That's a fallen angel. 
Okay. And there's lots of them out there because when when the market has a waterfall decline like this, every stock goes down. Mm-hmm. Almost every 98% of stocks get hit. I I was looking at charts this past weekend. Some of them were carbon copies of these of each other. Very different companies in different sectors, carbon copy. That's that's that means they're highly correlated to the panic. But that doesn't mean all of them within a span of a month became junk. You know, that's just defies logic. These are really good companies that are going to recover. It's going to take time. And I got time. I'm not that old. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Just to clarify for me, when you say buying assets, like, because for me, like you have an asset with your course on, you know, Correct. web, that's one asset. So when you say buying assets, like I was under the impression you were going out and buying online businesses from people that. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm saying, let's say I go to Empire Flippers and okay. say, let's look and see, let's take a look and see what's distressed, mm-hmm. right? Um, I was on a Zoom call this morning and I said, listen, um, sellers sell the past, buyers buy the future, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I may look at something and it's fallen off a cliff in terms of traffic and this and that. Yet I look at the asset and say, that's a really good asset. That asset is still, nothing has changed about the asset itself. What's changed is the market. Well, the market's going to change again. We're not going to be living on lockdown. I'm on. I'm at the end of week four of lockdown, as you you might be as well here in the U.S. This is not the new normal. We will eventually be able to go back to the gym and go to movies and all that stuff. When it happens is really the the question mark. In the meantime, if you take a really good asset and the market has shifted, just like Disney, uh, if I can buy that for, you know. 30 cents on the dollar. Again, they're selling in the past. I don't care about the past. What I care about is the future. And so if I buy it really cheap, I'm buying the upside. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Did, yeah. did I explain it well? Very I hope good. so. Yeah. My question then, in addition, is so are you taking like a feather that had a Warren Buffett? And when you buy these like online websites or, and acquiring these companies, are you leaving the individuals in control of those companies? That I'm I'm I haven't done enough research on it on it now, but more than likely no. Okay. I would do I would do a full blown just you get you hand me the keys. I'm going to drive it home. Interesting. Um, what gives me pause is that I don't know if I uh, I guess I don't know what I don't know, right? I'm not an SEO guru. I've coached people who do this, buy and sell them for a living, but generally they bring some some sort of skill set to the market, whether it be their their. CRO gurus or SEO, or they know how to do a skyscraper and all this stuff. I don't know any of that. So uh, I have to do some front end work to say, who am I going to partner with to make sure that, that I don't buy this asset and then inadvertently let it run fallow or drive it into the, into the ground because I don't know what I'm doing in managing that asset. Makes sense. Oh, 100%. Right. It seems like a, a fundamental b- rule you're breaking of going into a market in which you don't understand. Like, I get Correct. that you're looking for people to partner with who do understand it, but at the same time, it's like with little to no knowledge about owning an SEO business. You know, it's. I, I'm just browsing right now. Yeah. I guess I should have made that clear from the get go. Okay. I'm, I'm just browsing around saying, huh, this is an interesting thing to take a look at. But yes, there's a lot of hair on the deal. Um, 
and that needs to be sorted out. And and remember, the the rule in in these kind of tumultuous markets is, as we say on Wall Street, keep your powder dry, right? You know, explain my cash that. is not burning a that. hole in my pocket. Okay. What's that? I don't actually get that reference. Can you explain it? Keep your powder. Keep your dry. powder dry. That's, I don't know. It probably goes back to when when um, gunpowder was stored in barrels, oh, right? Okay. Okay. Don't get it. Don't let it get wet because it's useless if it gets wet. So, okay. keep your powder dry means if you've got cash, cash is king. Don't be in such a rush to put it back into the world. You can afford to take your time. Keep it dry, right? We've got other battles we need to fight. I love it. I love it. I'm going to have, I'm going to book another coaching call with you and just talk about this kind of stuff. <laughs> we could talk about all the wall street idioms. One day I'll just write a list of them. There's a million of them. That's there so are cool. millions. I want to talk a little bit more about what you do with individuals online, like the coaching that you do. Cause you have a book you've written, you know, financial intelligence where you take people through a 20 week course, right? You give them everything you know about, the finance finances, right? Financial markets. And then from savings to retirement, is that correct? Yeah, pretty much from, from your, my tagline is from your first savings bond to your last will and Testament. And is it, I mean, other people use this model as well. Is it something that you've just taken bits and pieces from other people's strategies that you then include in this 20 week kind of course, or is it, this is what you've learned over the last, you know, 30 years of what you do? I would say 98% of it is my own original thought from my, from my life experience. I'm a natural researcher, so it's very easy for me to, um, I'm, I, I read, you know, thousands and thousands of words a day. Um, it's a really an amalgamation. It's part anecdotal. I call it kind of a money memoir because I tell a lot of stories of good things I've done and bad things I've done. I think I told more bad stories than good stories. Um, it, it, to me, I kind of put my engineer's hat cause I'm an electrical engineer. That's my, that's my, um, my degree and engineers are very systematic and methodical but I also tried to humanize it a little bit because otherwise it's too boring and it's dry. It has to be fun, mm-hmm. right? Because this is tough, right? Planning is boring. People will tell you, I will tell you, planning is boring, but it's essential. Um, looking forward, uh, my second chapter is called The Thick Green Line where I, where I drew a, a, a graph of uh, your net worth versus your age. And I discovered by doing that that Many, many people will get to, to the age of 30 and they have a net worth of zero. My wife and I got married. I was 31. She was 29. We had a net worth of zero. You've now spent 30 years of your life. You've accumulated zero. That's pretty amazing. For some people, it's negative. If you got $100,000 of student debt and you're 30 years old. And now you've got a, a – if you want to retire at 65, there's that word again, R. You've got 35 years based on that to accumulate a fortune that's now going to going to last you for another maybe 25 years. You know, if you live, God forbid you lived to 90, I mean, I shouldn't say God forbid, but, um, as long as I'm healthy, I'd be happy to live to 90 and I have some money put away. So think of, do the math on that and think about it and say, wow, that there's a lot of pressure there. Yeah. How, how much of your success was due to hard work and how much was due to luck? You think? Um, 85 hard work, 15% luck. Just, yeah, keep persevering, trying new things, pivoting, trying more new things. Start with a strategy. It's the same thing I talk about in the business coaching. I can, I, I call myself a coach approach strategic advisor. 
my focus is on strategy. Uh, tactics, yeah, we'll talk about tactics and we'll vet tactics, but but tactic, tactics are kind of up to you as the entrepreneur or as the financial person. You can kind of decide, uh, hey, Henry, I don't like the stock market. It scares me. Fine. Find something else to invest in. Maybe you want to invest in real estate, right? There's a lot of different places that you can park your money and get it to work for you. The first chapter of my book is called The Psychology of Money. So the, the starting point for everything is figuring out your personal tendencies. Are you living in scarcity? Are you living in abundance? And everything in between. That sets the tone, and then you can sit down and figure out a plan. So that was really my approach from day one. How many people have gone through your 20-week course at this point? Uh, I had 12 beta testers, and I have a couple people that are in the course now because I, I really just launched it. Oh, okay. So nobody nobody for pay has finished it, but so far the feedback has been good. Uh, what I covered in the in the book was – it, it actually I actually wrote it as a course, and, and then I, I kind of – it was like the tail that wagged the dog. After I was just about ready to launch it for real – a few more than a few people said to me, you know, you should turn it into a book and make it a lead magnet. Um, and I thought about it and I said, well, I kind of always wanted to publish a book, but that's going to put me behind my, my schedule because it's, it's a, it's a big undertaking to, uh, to write a book, at least to write one that that you, that you believe is, you know, highly professional. So, so that took a while. Like how long did it take? It took me about a year because I had to go back and rework everything. I had to hire a copy editor. I didn't know what a copy editor was. Uh, I had had to hire two proofreaders because I'm belts and braces. Uh, I hired a layout designer because I wasn't happy laying it out in Microsoft Word. I said, you know, it's just not good enough. So he laid it out in Adobe InDesign. Then he, he said, uh, uh, you've got 250 infographics. A lot of these will ne never print right in a hardcover book. So I had to hire a guy on Fiverr in, uh, where is he, in Latvia or something like that, who for 10 bucks a piece would convert all of my graphics into vectors. <laughs> so there was a lot of stuff that went in. And then there's revisions and rewrites and a bunch of stuff. Um, but I think it was worth it. It made the product that much better. Yeah, I think that's all that matters if you're happy with the end result, right? Yeah, no doubt. Of the five to six businesses that you started, how many of them were you actually familiar with the business model, like the business you were getting yourself into? All of them? Handful, like a couple of them? Um, the computer business, which is the first one that we started, yeah, I was very familiar with that. So the, the operational side of that um, was, was pretty much right in my wheelhouse. Um, my partner handled the sales and marketing, so it was a, it was a nice match. And then we spun off a, a, a leasing business because he had a background in, in leasing. So we were leasing computers and other equipment. So that was a good match there, too. Um, I was in the home theater business. That was one of those businesses where I said, I'm going to go in the home theater business. And I had lunch with a friend of mine. And he was building a house out on Long Island. And he wanted to really tech it out with all sorts of audio and all that sort of stuff. And as we left, he shook my hand and said, you got the job, just don't fuck it up. I hadn't even incorporated at that. I had nothing at all other than I had a deal. That was it. But I had run other businesses before. I knew how to do all that. So I knew what how was to the end result of the home theater business that that was that successful? 
Um, it was successful. Again, it's it's funny. These these um, black swan events come up. So that was successful until the housing market cratered. Okay, yeah, fair enough. That makes sense. Who's going to spend $100,000 to tech out their house with a theater and all this stuff when people on Wall Street were getting laid off? Just wasn't going to happen. So when that thing went bust, you just cut your losses, sell your whatever? I sold off the assets. Yeah, I didn't sell a fully functioning business. I sold off the assets, um, which was good. I was able to get out of that business pretty clean. Um, And then I I traded for a little while as I was trying to figure out what I was going to do going to do with the rest of my life. I had just turned 50. And that's where I came up with the coaching. I, I sat down. It's it's It was really the first time in my life, I can say, that I created what I call a purposeful business. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think of business as two ways. The there, There's the accidental business and the purposeful business. So the accidental business was my first company. My college buddy said, I need a bunch of computers. I can't source them. Can you help me? Yeah, I can do that. And then I did it again and again and again, and all of a sudden I was accidentally in business, right? Mm-hmm. There was no no forethought to it. I had an opportunity, I seized it. For the coaching, I said, I'm going to sit down and actually write down some pros and cons. What are the things that I really want and what do I not want? And that was a systematic approach. And I said, I don't want to manage a balance sheet and an income statement and a statement of cash flows, but I'm happy to help someone else do that. I do want to be location independent because pretty soon I'm going to be an empty nester. And so, in fact, one of the DCers a few years ago said to me, Henry, you are a digital nomad. You just don't know it. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's the case. Um, so I had a whole laundry list of stuff and I looked at my skill set and I said, this is a perfect match for me. And then I signed up for a school and I spent a year at Coachville coach training to learn the best practices of coaching. And then I got out of that and I said, you know what? I like a lot of what it is, but a lot of stuff is, uh, there's a lot of my skills that I'm leaving um, on the table. Mm -hmm. And that's where I created my own sort of imprimatur, which is sort of this hybrid of, you know, half coach, half advisor. That's really interesting. You went to school for it. I've heard only one other person ever going to school to like learn how to be a coach. Um, is that pretty common for people to do when they become life coaches, business coaches? Um, I've actually spoken to a couple of DCers who have actually gone to like IPEC or Coach U. But I would say if you did a poll of all the coaches that are out there, and there's a coach for just about anything that you can think of, I think it would probably be one in ten mm-hmm. who's actually taking the time. Costs a lot of time, costs a lot of money. Um, and it's and no one's ever – actually, one person in all my years of doing this has actually asked me if I was certified. <laughs> and I said, certifiable or certified? No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, I said, no, I'm not. I said, what, what made you think of that question? Well, I was on the internet looking for questions to ask. So I actually use that as a springboard to write my own little 25-page PDF that I give away on my website that says – Ten questions to ask when hiring a coach, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But how are you? And not one of them was, you are you to certified? School? Like you, you went to school to get certified. I thought no. I didn't know. I did not. I, I I went to school to learn best practices. I could have gone through what are called the practicums for certification. Okay. But the problem is, if I become 
you know, a PCC or an MCC, I'm now bound by a set of rules that I don't want to be bound by. Okay. So that's why I, I purposely chose not to, because there are things that you, that you can and can't do as a quote certified coach that for me were deal breakers. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to do that. So yeah, you've been coaching now 10 years and I got that right at 10 years. Uh, a little less, a little less than that. Probably, okay. probably about eight and a half, maybe I think roughly. Okay. And how many businesses have you coached at this point? Oh God, uh, I don't know. I have a database somewhere, but uh, that 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 could pop that out. But it's you know it's scores of them, a lot of different entrepreneurs and a lot of different disciplines. Um, yeah, like a success story that you'd like to share with us, like one that just got hit out of the park. Uh, I have one right now. Um, a guy, he's uh, he's actually a DCer. He started. We we started. It was he was the one who introduced me to the DC. Okay. Um, he started at a million dollars, and he's probably getting very close to ten million dollars top line, oh, wow. which is my perfect. Uh, that's my that's like my wheelhouse. I like to start at a million and work my way up. Um, that's really good. I mean, it's a really good success story. That's my sweet spot. I mean, only, um, only about 4% of all businesses and there are 30 million businesses in America. Only 4% of them will ever eclipse a million dollars top line. So the vast majority of businesses are in what I call stage zero. And I love to work with them, but the the simple fact is a lot of times they don't have the cash flow to pay me. So, yeah. So that was was your fourth business. Do you have a fifth or sixth business that you started? (laughs) Uh, I started a website about 20 years ago that sold um, uh, Sonic walls and Cisco products, firewalls and stuff like that to compete with firewalls.com. We did okay with that. Um, I had a real estate business where we built multi-million dollar spec houses. I wrote about this in my book. Uh, We did well and then my partner jumped off a bridge and left me holding a multi-million dollar liability. Um, that business partner wasn't in San Diego, were they? No, no, no we were in Westchester. Uh, it was, it was uh, uh, humbling because I thought I had done everything I needed to do to insulate myself from risk, and I didn't at all. Take Could I have anticipated? Like, I'm sorry. How'd Say you, again. How do you? I mean, you're such so, you're such an analytical guy. Like I, I, I know that you had no doubt in your mind. You had insulated yourself. So what went wrong? Um, well, I didn't have hard money in this in our very last deal. Uh, I had put hard money, meaning like actually written checks of my own money for other deals. But in this deal, I didn't. I raised all the money from investors, and all I did was guarantee the note. The note was multiple millions of dollars. And I thought, huh, what could go wrong with me just guaranteeing the note, right? I don't have hard money in play. So my my downside risk. So fast forward, guy jumps off bridge. You know, the only other guarantor on planet Earth has now died. His state is insolvent because we discover after the fact that he'd been, you know, uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul which I was not aware of, another mistake I made, not giving myself uh, complete access to the books. Never make that mistake again. So it's like, uh, I'm going through the catalog and it's like, wow, uh, everything that I could have done wrong on this thing, I did wrong. I had blinders on. It was uh, you know the 2000s where the real estate market was going crazy and I knew better. And 
I ignored the voices in my head saying that I need to button this down. And that was really humbling for me. I have to say, um, eventually I got out of it. Was it greed that was keeping those blinders on you think, or was it fear to ask the right questions and get deeper into the books? I think it was, I don't think it was greed. I don't really suffer from, from greed per se. Certainly I love money. I'm not going to, I'm not going to kid myself here, but I don't consider myself a greedy person at all. In fact, I, I tend to be very much the opposite. I tend to be overly giving and philanthropic. Um, and sometimes I get taken advantage of. I think that what really happened was we, we had moved to this other community. We'd left New York city. We moved to Westchester, they were like our first friends. He was the contractor who did the renovation on our house. And they were, you know, we, my wife and I consider ourselves a bit of oddballs. Um, and they were too. And we were having a hard time fitting in. So I, I, I basically didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize our friendship. Because friendship at that point in our life was really in short supply. So I think that was really the main contributor to my not, not really forcing more um, probative questions and putting more guardrails up. That makes total sense, man. I can totally relate. And thank you for being so transparent with that. I think that's beneficial for people to hear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You got to do all the due diligence, even in those uncomfortable moments with friends, you know, it, it's, you know, like I said, it, there were some really valuable and I, I wrote it out in, in, um, detail. In fact, <clears throat> when I, uh, when the copy editor went through, um, the manuscript the first time she uh she flagged that she said this is this section is too angry she said this is going to turn your readers off and i went back and i read it and i had my wife read it and she's like duh yeah maybe you might want to change that so i said you know that's why a copy editor a good copy editor is worth their weight in gold because she opened my eyes to something that i wouldn't have seen myself and so i went back and i and I rewrote it, and she said, yeah, that's much, much better. Nice. So now with you know your coaching business, which seems to be kind of where you're at right now, do you have any aspirations to do more businesses? I mean, I know you're buying, interested in buying businesses, but for yourself creating something new? Um, I, I, I don't. Um, well, I mean, I do. I have lots and lots of business ideas, so I think of myself more as the visionary than the integrator. But philosophically, um, uh, you know, my, my philosophy is that you should really beat your business business ideas up. Uh, you should you should assume that your business you should try to uncover every reason that your business idea is going to fail. Um, and so I have these business ideas, but then I start beating them up, and I say, uh, you know what, it's it's nice and I like it, but it's not it's not going to work. There's some fatal flaw to it. Um, I often say trillions of dollars have been saved by people not executing their business ideas. Um, but never say never. I'm 60 years old. There's lots of you know things that are out there and the world is changing. Like I said, maybe, maybe there's a digital asset in my future. Um, I love – I'm an audiophile, so I love super high-end audio. I read an article a couple years ago about these little um, – these little shops that were opening up where they had really high end audio and people could come in and listen to, you know, dark side of the moon on vinyl. Right. And I thought, wow, that, you know, that would be awesome. Um, but the, the but if you run the numbers on that, it's just like, how are you going to make money on that? 
You know, if you had unlimited resources and didn't mind dumping tens of thousands a month into this toy business, like a super rich guy who buys a restaurant, because most restaurants are money losers, uh, but I'm not that guy. Right? So always yeah. keeping my eyes open. I like it, dude. Do you ever fear losing it all? Like, is that ever a fear in the back of your mind? I mean, a lot of, I'm in Newport Beach right now as we do this, and um, I do have wealthy friends, parents who reached an age where they started making some plays that were just crazy and they lost mm -hmm. it all. Do you ever fear that might happen to you? I know people who've lost it all. Yeah. Like in the last quarter of their life, last 10%. Sure. I remember the night that um, Bernie Madoff was arrested. I didn't know who Bernie Madoff was. I was on my way to a Christmas party. Uh, I guess it was 2008. Um, uh, it came across on my BlackBerry. <laughs> That's how long ago it was because I had a BlackBerry. And I went to this Christmas party and a friend of mine, my friend Jonathan, walked in and he goes, did you hear about that? I'm like, yeah, who is this guy? He goes, I have money invested with him. So does my sister. So does my dad. And then all of a sudden over the next days and weeks, you started hearing from people. And it's like, who is this guy? Um, and then I, I remember I went online. They had a list of his victims online. It was 63 pages long. And I started leafing through it. And it's like, oh, my God, I know that guy. I know that guy. I know that guy. It was insane, right? What are the lessons to be learned from that? Well, number one, diversify, right? Don't, you know, you, it's okay to put all your eggs in one basket. Just watch that fucking basket, right? So uh, number two, leverage. The reason people lose things very quickly is they're over leveraged, right? Their debt to equity ratio is out of whack. That's one thing I never suffer from. I have a $15,000 car loan. That's it. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have any of that stuff. I keep debt. I just don't believe in personal debt within reasons. Hard to buy a house without a, without a mortgage. Um, I get that. But you need to keep those ratios in check. So even when the tide went out in 2008, I still had a very positive asset to debt ratio, which helps me sleep at night. Um, so I've never thought of, oh, my God, it's all going to go. But I do worry about money every single day. <laughs> worry just because you, you're so in it and you, you enjoy looking at numbers? I, I, I just think it was a learned habit from the time I that I was little. I just, think it's, I just think it's baked into the pie. So why fight it? Right. What kind of hobbies do you have that are outside of the realm of business and finance and being on? Oh, I got lots of, I mean, I'm a golfer and I can't golf because all the golf courses are closed and I, I like to play tennis and I can't do that either. Um, I write screenplays. I've written 11 screenplays. And um, so I'm working on a website that to showcase like the first 10 pages of um, some of my scripts. I enter them into contests. I've gotten very good feedback. I've had pros read them. But it's a whole nother thing. But I just like I just like writing stories. I collect baseball cards from um, from the same time period that I collected them in my youth, 1967 to 1960. Uh, sorry, 1967 to 1973. Um, so I do. I have a lot of lot of little different things that I do. What topics are you normally write about when it comes to screenplays? Is it a theme or is it always different? 
they're always different. Every every screenplay that I write, which is which is not a good thing, right? By the way, you should never. If you're a screenwriter, never tell somebody in the business that you can write anything because they'll what they'll hear is you can't write anything. Okay. Right. Um, so I've written. I, I happen to like what they call what I would call a dramedy, but uh, I'm writing two scripts right now. One is a, I guess you would call it a a, a dramedy, and and the other one is. Um, kind of a, uh, a family story, but you know, it's funny and it's sad too. So, so I like that. So I've, I've, I've got a sci-fi story that I've written. I've got a bunch of different genres, comedies, black comedy, which is very hard to write dark comedy. Hmm. So, and you've got yeah. some good feedback. Have you sold any? I have not sold any. I got, I made the quarterfinals with one of my scripts at a, at the, at really the, the ultimate contest, which is called the nickel Academy. It's run by the Oscars. So I made the quarterfinals, which means I was in the top 300 out of about 7,500 scripts. Um, it's a really good script, uh, but I think if it's ever going to get made, I'm going to have to be the one to make it. So maybe that's a maybe that's a future business for me <laughs> down the line, filmmaker. I don't know. You're going to have to make it because you love it so much you wouldn't let anybody else touch it, or because got to protect your words. I see. You have to, I'd have to be the producer because the only the only person who can protect your words is the producer. You are a fascinating man, Henry. I really appreciate <laughs> your time, dude. If you could speak I appreciate one, your time. Yeah, it was dude. awesome. If you could speak to one audience member, you know, about if they're about to start something business-wise, what piece of advice would you give them? Okay. Easy piece of business advice. And this, I think this came from, from Bill Gates. You know, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Put together a bench. I wrote about it in my book where I said, you need to have a bench, a lawyer, doctors, a plumber. Everybody has to have a plumber, right? Probably the number one person on your bench is a really good plumber who'll show up at a moment's notice. But when you're starting a business, find those smart people, right? Leverage them as best as you can. Don't be a user, but leverage their knowledge and their expertise. I'll stop short of, of being self you know, uh, aggrandizing and say, hire a coach. Mm -hmm. You can always do that later on down the line. Do everything that you can for a minimum amount of investment that you, that you, when you start now, having said all that, be careful that it's not too many voices, right? Cause that can just create confusion. Find some trusted resources, people who, who, um, you can put your faith into, to give you, Honest, judgment-free feedback and lean on them at least early on. It's a lot easier to do this if you surround yourself with a crowd of really smart and knowledgeable people. Entrepreneurs have this romantic notion that they can do it all themselves. I run across that all the time in, in coaching. People come to me with their tails between their legs like, like it's a sign of weakness that they had to seek a coach to help them. I'm like, dude, that's a sign of strength. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. They're out there. Right? Just look at the DC. There are tons and people, tons of people who are willing to help. All you got to do is ask. Get over that hump. Just ask. No one is going to judge you if you ask for their help and their expertise. Quite the opposite. They're going to be flattered. Mm-hmm. I love it. So if somebody wanted to come ask for help from you, they go to what? 
dasknowledge.com or henrydas.com? Yeah, um, uh, go to right. Go to dasknowledge.com. Although I also own dassknowledge.com because uh, people misspell my name all the time. So I'm being talk about being belts and braces. Um, uh, yeah, go there. I got a big banner on the front that says for April, May, and June, coaching is free. Right? Come sign up for a call. I'm happy to talk to you. We're all we're all in a time of crisis. We're all in this together. Anything that I can do to help a business owner keep his business from going under, that benefits all of us. It well, just I does. Sure to appreciate you, Henry. Thank you for your time, dude. Thank you. Awesome, Henry. Thank you so much for your time. We do appreciate you. We love you. If you are somebody who is listening right now who needs that help, somebody who would like some direction in their business, in their life, in their financial situation that they find themselves in, please check out Henry. HenryDoss.com, DossKnowledge.com. He's a wealth of information, a rad dude, somebody who's willing to give his time to anybody who's interested in seeking him out. Definitely check him out. And again, if you're a first-time listener, please pull up that phone, hit the subscribe button. If you want to support Misfits and Rejects, please head over to Patreon.com backslash Misfits and Rejects. Monthly donations are very appreciated. Nothing is expected. And if you want to buy a t-shirt, head over to MisfitsandRejects.com backslash shop and get one of those. Please remember, I think you all are so very beautiful. I appreciate you, your time, and joining me week in and week out for these really cool inspirational stories of individuals living their ideal life, which I hope inspires you to take that first step towards yours. I love you. I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.